That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Cara Denisio. And I'm Dr. David Miller, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting it all together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of health care. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you need to know about. All right, you know we talk a lot about iron on this podcast. It comes up with almost every guest. Which makes sense. It's the world's most common nutrient deficiency after all. So we were really excited when Farah Pro reached out to sponsor TNP in recognition of us championing the importance of iron deficiency. Well, let's get right to the point. Iron deficiency is often inappropriately assessed or diagnosed and is very often inadequately treated. Which means it will leave you or your patients feeling tired and literally pulling their hair out if it doesn't fall out first. And often the dose just isn't enough. We have typically only had a lower dose 30 milligram iron supplement available for our dispensaries. So we've been having to send patients to the pharmacy for higher-dose products that may be hard on the gut or have a lot of binders, artificial colors, and fillers. But thankfully, Ferropro has been solving this problem for over 20 years with their lineup of intelligent and clean pharmacist-formulated iron products. I love that the Ferropro lineup includes a 30-milligram, 75-milligram, and their high-dose 150-milligram iron per cap so that you can have the right dose right there when your patient needs it. If you think your patients would benefit from Ferapro, send an email to info at ferapro.com. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. This is Dr. Kara. And this is Dr. Dave. And who do we have today? Well, we're joined by another non-ND guest, which I think is uh, is great. I love learning from other professionals. Um, and today uh, we're joined by Ying Wang, who is a pharmacist or compounding pharmacist, joining us from uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome, Ying. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's introduce let's introduce Ying a bit. Um, Ying is obviously, like you said, a compounding pharmacist, um, which means she's done her pharmacy degree and then done some more work in compounding. Um, and she also works uh, with Ferapro, who's our sponsor for the show. So we just wanted to be you know disclose that from the beginning. She's very very uh, knowledgeable in iron, and that's why we have her on the show. Um, and and sometimes she does some work with Ferapro um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's important to say at the beginning here. Um, Ying, do you want us to tell us a little bit of, of why you got into uh, you know the depth of knowledge that you have about um, iron and iron deficiency? Mm-hmm, yeah. So I f- was first kind of introduced to the notion of iron therapy and how much compounding can play a role in helping people with iron deficiency, even when I was a student. Um, I did a practicum um, when I was in second year pharmacy school uh, with Pure Pharmacy on the island of Victoria. And 
I started noticing a lot of these patients coming in for a compounded formula called Bob's Iron, and I didn't know what that was. Um, but I've had a lot of patients be frustrated with other iron therapies because it's either just causing a lot of symptoms and side effects, or it's not working to raise their iron levels. And these patients that came back for Bob's Iron, it was a compounded formula at the time. Um, it's just spreading by word of mouth with local practitioners. Um, and when I started practicing after graduation, it just became really apparent uh, being in pure pharmacy specifically because we do compound the formula that it, it's one of the only things that I've seen work as well as it does um, for an otherwise group of patients that was really frustrated by the lack of options. So iron deficiency being so prevalent, especially in female health, um, I think being a female myself, I understand the frustration of a lack of options and seeing that it, there's an option here that is quite effective and, and well-tolerated um, really piqued my interest. And so that's evolved over time um, to Ferropro today, but a lot of thought, uh, a lot of thoughtful design has gone into the formula, and I'd love to talk about that. And, yeah. and it's interesting, I mean, from a clinical perspective, um, you know, seeing, you know, patients one-on-one, -on -one, we hear that, right? I hear, I'll ask a patient, have you, you know, is your, like, there's so many problems along this route that it's either, have you had your iron tested? Oh, yes, it's normal. And yet their ferritin's like six or, mm -hmm. um, oh, I can't take iron. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Well, it doesn't work because there's side effects and they don't take it. Right. Or it works, but then there's that, that catch 22 of it works, but then it causes other problems. So I'm really excited to dive into kind of the nitty gritty of iron supplementing with you, because I think, you know, if we can solve those problems, we have so many patients who can just feel so much better. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think, Ying, you could maybe start with some of the things that you see as like the most common uh, symptoms uh, that sort of lead you to think maybe there's iron deficiency and I'm sure we have a lot in common but uh, tell us what you what you see from your depth of understanding mm -hmm, yeah fatigue number one mm -hmm. you know uh, exercise intolerance uh, patients will tell me I'm short of breath after going up a flight of stairs um, sometimes that can manifest also as dry hair hair falling out and I always want to do sort of a differential diagnosis between low thyroid and low iron because there's so much overlap in the symptoms there um, and we're lucky in that we have really good, accurate lab testing to be able to help with that. So if I hear these symptoms, um, I will, and, and in the absence of labs, I will send them to their doctor to get that done because one, if it is a thyroid issue, I wouldn't want to mask it or delay therapy um, by pushing an iron supplement. Mm -hmm. And two, it's always good to get a baseline of where we are at if it is indeed low iron. Um, and it's important to note also that like you said, people who think they have a normal iron level um, can be easily symptomatic for low iron, and that can affect their quality of life. Um, so getting that lab, lab testing, I think, is really important. Once I have that number, um, then we can start thinking about supplementation and, and the doses and the regimens, et cetera. Um, but there's also some really interesting symptoms of low iron that are not as commonly known. But sometimes when you make that link, it just makes so much sense. Like um, restless legs, you know, people mm -hmm. don't talk about that. And I've, I've had patients who have restless legs and they're taking, you know, heaps of magnesium or even prescription pills for it when it was just low iron to begin with. 
um, glossitis, so the tongue. I studied traditional Chinese medicine um, overseas for a semester when I was in school. And uh, one of the most interesting things I found in that course is in traditional Chinese medicine, they utilize the tongue for so much diagnosis. And not to confuse that with, you know, evidence-based Western medicine, which I am absolutely um, a practitioner of, but uh, one of the symptoms of iron deficiency is glossitis. You know, so there's a few other sort of smaller um, symptoms. Pika, you know, the the sensation of wanting to eat dirt or minerals for some reason is a really unusual symptom. And that can be your your body signaling to you that your iron is low. Um, people who really enjoy eating ice, that could be a symptom as well. Yes. So interesting ones as well as really common ones. And anytime I hear things like that, I, I do prompt for labs. Mm-hmm. Are you working with any specific populations? Um, I mean, you know, Dave and I, our specialties really overlap with Iron Well. I'm in women's health and, and Dave really focuses on uh, gut health. Um, is that kind of the populations you're really seeing are, um, or can you think of any others that are, are really more at risk perhaps of iron deficiency? Certainly, yeah. Definitely women, you know, uh, way more women than men. And and for obvious reasons, we're losing a lot more blood through menstruation. We can get into talking about iron homeostasis and how we absorb and also how we lose iron because that's a a quite interesting topic. Um, But women who are at risk of losing much more iron just by virtue of our monthly cycle, Mm-hmm. Um, so I do see a lot of that and, and my practice also is in primarily hormone health and so women's health. Um, I do see that, um, a lot of cases though go a little bit more unrecognized and it has to do with drug induced iron depletion. So patients who have chronic complex polypharmacy, so many of them are going to be on acid suppressants like PPIs. And in the absence of stomach acid, iron does not get absorbed appropriately. So those patients are at high risk of iron deficiency. Patients who have chronic illness, they may not be directly iron deficient, but they have anemia of chronic disease. And that also can have iron deficiency folded into it. So it's a pretty wide spectrum, but I would say the the classic patient would be our sort of menstruating females possibly who are vegetarian or vegan, Mm, many more risk factors there. Mm -hmm. So can we get into, uh, say it's established, okay, wow, you need some iron. (laughs) Can we maybe like start from the top down? Um, I don't know what the best strategy is for talking about this. Um, I'd love to talk about different forms of iron, Mm -hmm. what happens when we swallow it and it gets in our gut and then how that whole, um, like, just a whole kind of profile of what happens to iron once we, yeah. we take it in. So I don't know, where would you like to start there? If I have a really curious patient and I have a lot of time to do a consult, I think the first place I like to start is actually explaining how iron is regulated in the body, because that does play an important role in how we think about iron supplementation. And so the first thing I tell patients is, your body has no way of controlling iron um, levels in the, in the body except by controlling how it's absorbed. We do not actively excrete iron. It's one of the few minerals that we can't just flush out of our system. 
Um, and so the body is really, really tight in its regulation of how well we absorb the iron, because if we absorb too much, we can't get rid of it and it becomes toxic. If we don't absorb enough, we become deficient. So because absorption is the only place where the body can actually make a difference in how much iron is stored or utilized, uh, it becomes imperative that we choose a form of iron that actually gets absorbed appropriately to the levels that we need. So knowing that that is the place where regulation happens, um, and then also knowing how the body recognizes and absorbs different forms of iron. So we probably heard of the terms heme and non-heme. Mm -hmm. So heme iron exclusively comes from animals. And it's because animals um, like us hold iron in their blood cells. And so our bodies have a different way of absorbing heme iron. It goes through a different channel. Um, and typically our bodies absorb heme iron a little bit more efficiently um, than non-heme iron. But I will say that the difference is not as high as people think. Um, non-heme iron is any form of iron that's not coming from animals. So it could be from plant sources. Um, we've all heard spinach, but lots of other dietary sources as well. Or um, it also includes uh, most of our supplements. And so to give you an idea of the difference in absorption, um, there's a wide range. And that comes from the fact that the body has a way of shutting off its own absorption pathways um, for homeostasis. So heme iron can absorb, be, may be absorbed with a bioavailability of 15 to 30% and non-heme iron, maybe five to 20%. So there's overlap there. You know, heme iron is not this hugely more advantageous way to get iron. And I think that is important when we start talking about the different types of supplements. So just to clarify for our listeners, when you're saying bioavailability, let's say just let's pick a random uh, even number. So let's say they're taking in 100 milligrams of iron. When you're talking about bioavailability, say of 15%, then that would mean they're only actually absorbing 15 milligrams. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So what's happening to the other uh, 85 milligrams? You, it gets unchanged and passes through as feces. Mm -hmm. um, so that leads into sort of the side effect profile for supplements that are not absorbed. They stay in the gut and they cause constipation, upset stomach, nausea. So uh, side effects and efficacy for iron supplements actually typically go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And is that, so I guess the higher the bioavailability, the less that's kind of ultimately going through the gut and the less mm -hmm. side effects, or mm -hmm. is it, is there differences in uh, the gut side effects uh, based on the different forms of iron? So heme and non-heme, I think heme iron typically is thought to be a little bit better tolerated, but between the different forms of non-heme iron, of course, if it's dietary, if it's coming from plants, it's not going to upset the stomach because the iron content is so much lower. Um, but among the therapeutic doses of non-heme iron, um, and we'll get into sort of the different forms, but there was kind of this push that certain forms might be better tolerated than others. And now we're kind of maybe refuting it. The pendulum is swinging a little bit. So it, I think it does rely heavily on how well it's being absorbed. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I've got to say, I, I, I tried for a while in clinic to use uh, heme iron, mm-hmm. um, and I it wasn't I, I wasn't getting much budge. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. The heme iron's always uh, dosed very low. Like a capsule is about eleven it's, milligrams. Yeah, and it's like comparing apples and oranges. Um, so let's get into it. Let's get into sure. sort of what we would consider for dosing regimens. Um, say your patient comes back with a ferritin of 15, which is our cutoff for iron deficiency. We know for sure we need to hit a therapeutic dose of iron for them. Um, what we're aiming for is between like 100 and 200 milligrams of elemental iron. And when we say that, we do mean non-heme ferrous salts, which is like your regular over-the-counter iron supplement. Um, when we talk about heme iron and those typical dosing, you're right. It's like 11 milligrams or 10 milligrams per tablet. And it's not evidence-based at all. You know, um, their manufacturers kind of justify the dosing because they claim that the heme iron is so much more well-absorbed. But, you know, as we know, it's it may not be the case. And it, even if it was, we don't have head-to-head trials. Um, what we do have for evidence is heme iron has been shown to help um, prevent iron deficiency in patients with chronic disease, so uh, chronic kidney disease patients. But to my knowledge, it hasn't really been tested in trials for otherwise healthy patients with just iron deficiency anemia. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, you have to take three a day, mm-hmm. and those bottles get really expensive. It is very um, costly. And on top of that, it's not vegetarian and vegan friendly. So a huge portion of patients who are probably iron deficient cannot even take them. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think there's, if you have a patient that's already doing really well on heme iron, by all means, keep them going with that. Um, but it's definitely not my first choice because we just don't really have evidence-based ways of, do- of dosing it. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah Ying, and I want to ask a question about the absorption of heme iron. I, I read mm-hmm. a paper a while ago, and so it might be... Um, you know, might be just showing my age, I might be out of the loop here, but I, I was pretty sure that they weren't sure exactly the mechanism of how it's absorbed anyway. Yeah, we know that the body has a active transporter for heme iron, but we don't know how in supplemental doses, non-dietary doses, how that's working. Mm-hmm. Um, so to my knowledge, it's been, it, clinical trials have been limited to those chronic disease patients. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I'd love to get into uh, the non-heme forms because there's, mm-hmm. it's almost like a rivalry. <laughs> let's like, <laughs> let's put them all in the ring because, uh, you know, th- there's like heated debates over this. I, and I know there are head-to-head trials, um, but practitioners get into ideas of what the best one is, or actually there's some forms of iron that end up having like a stigma against them too. So um I don't know. That's just my impression. Uh, but I would love to hear. I was one of those people. Yeah. I would love mm-hmm. to hear if you could just run us through different forms of iron, what that means, you know, the difference between the salts or other forms and, mm-hmm. and, and things like that, just so that we're better informed, both as uh, clinicians prescribing it mm-hmm. or for, for those listening when they're considering supplementing. Yeah. Yes, before I get into the different forms, I do want to plug one piece of sort of the science-y thing is when we have a non-heme iron absorption. So when we look at iron on a periodic table, and this is going to get really science-y, so bear with me. (laughs) Iron can come in two forms. It can come in ferrous or ferric. 
And the difference between that is it either has a two plus, it's just the number of, you know, electrons on it, or a three plus. And the reason that's relevant is your body at the gut level can only absorb ferrous iron, two plus. Um, if you have ferric iron, um, coming in that that's plant forms of iron and certain supplements like the polysaccharide iron complexes, um, your body actually has to do the extra step of converting to ferrous iron before it'll get it absorbed. Um, now, once it's absorbed, once it's dissolved in the gut, it, there's equilibrium. So it's always fluctuating between ferrous and ferric. And another complicating factor is if you don't have enough vitamin C or if your body is not acidic enough um, in that particular site of absorption, you're going to air toward ferric form and not be able to absorb that iron. Did that make sense? Yeah. yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. So I think that that's relevant to mention because supplements that we have on market right now uh, uh, exist both in fair risk form and fair rick form. And mm -hmm. I think that does make a difference in how well they work in terms of raising the ferritin levels. Um, so conventional iron salts. This is ferrous gluconate, ferrous sulfate, ferrous fumarate. These are are good old, you know, over-the-counter $5 iron supplements. They are in the form of ferrous, 2+, plus, and so we know that that's the form that gets absorbed. They are cheap. They're, they're very inexpensive. Uh, they, the thing about them is it's confusing for the patient because the amount of elemental iron varies so widely between the three forms. So you have to have a practitioner kind of hold their hand in terms of how to dose it. Um, but I, I am a big fan because they, we know they work. There's abundant evidence on them, uh, and we know exactly how to dose them, right? Mm -hmm. The other form, um, which is kind of new to market, I'm seeing it more and more, um, in, especially in sort of the supplement natural health field is, uh, ferrous iron chelates. So we're seeing, uh, ferrous bisglycinate. Um, and the, what we mean by chelate is that instead of using a very simple molecule to attach to that ferrous, um, element, we put an amino acid on there. And the thought is that like a lot of other minerals we're finding, if we put an amino acid on there, it's a lot less likely to cause those side effects, constipation, um, nausea, et cetera. And it doesn't seem to hinder the absorption of the, the ferrous molecule itself. So that's more and more what I'm seeing, and I'm I'm a fan of that as well. Um, the third form is polysaccharide iron complexes. Um, so this is kind of like the Ferramax and like the the generics that have come out since then, um, which put a ferrous iron in the middle of this giant sugar molecule. And the thought is that the sugar molecule can kind of help things along and reduce the risk of upset stomach. And then you don't have to take it on an empty stomach. These are all claims that I think were really heavily pushed by the manufacturer. Um, but we're finding more and more, and this is quite evidence-based. I think just last year, um, a review came out with the Canadian Family Physician uh, Journal that in comparison, uh, polysaccharide iron complexes were not superior to just our really cheap iron salts. And in fact, the iron salts were more effective at raising ferritin in the same amount of time. And the claim that 
polysaccharide complexes were easier on the stomach, less incidence of side effects were actually um, not based in science. Uh, so it's interesting to me um, because Ferrimax and, and polysaccharide iron complexes were just like an automatic go-to recommendation for so many clinicians for a long time. Um, but as the research is coming out, I'm finding that uh, the pendulum is swinging the other way where we are going back to the basics of what we know is, is evidence-based and what we know works. Yeah, that's, that's a really great, great run through. Um, uh, really helpful for me. And it, it's interesting, like, I mean, we should be able to adapt and change as evidence comes out. Um, I think where I'd love to go, um, just kind of based on that, I mean, I actually have a history of prescribing a lot of, of Faramax. And that's because I only had a few options. Either I had like low dose 30 milligram iron on my shelves. Like a bisglycinate? Yeah, like an iron bisglycinate. Or if I needed a higher, like if I didn't want a patient taking a whole bunch of capsules, we were going, I was suggesting, you know, Faramax, uh, which works well for, for, for some people or, or even, uh, lots of people, but it was either that or then going to those salts, which were more the pharmacy, like more like a pharmacy heart, those hard green and red tablets. Um, and I just comparative, um, comparatively, we're seeing more side effects, you know, from those, like, you know, do you know the ones I'm talking about, like the mm -hmm. hard red and green tablets? Mm -hmm. And so there's probably a lot of art here in how we're formulating, um, even within like, say, a ferrous fumarate in a hard tablet versus a capsule or other things that we're giving along with it. Um, mm -hmm. Is that correct? Is that there a lot of difference in in how we're just formulating it, even compared to the same, like apples to apples? Yeah. So let's Let's talk about the just the basic formulation itself, and I'm talking about liquid capsule gel cap tablet. Mm -hmm. I think there is this conception um, in most of us that if we have something in a liquid form or even a capsule form that in our minds dissolves way easier, that it inherently is easier to absorb. And for the ma vast majority of medications and supplements, that's simply not true. Hmm. So the dissolution step of any, I shouldn't say any, most medications and supplements is not the rate limiting step. Okay. Um, so our bodies are really efficient at dissolving a tablet into um, the solution or a capsule into solution. Um, and so by the time the supplement gets into the gut, it, it's in the same form as if you took it in a liquid form. So that is not the rate limiting step. What is the rate limiting step? And this is especially true for iron because it is so closely gatekept by the body is that the absorption itself is the rate limiting step. And so if something is inherently in a tablet form, and I, I totally understand if there's sensitivities to the dyes um, or the non-medication, uh, the excipient ingredients, that that could be a barrier to therapy. Um, but inherently a tablet versus a capsule in most people doesn't make a difference. The second part of that is it is so confusing. You're right. When we have ferrous gluconate, which is, you know, 36 milligrams per tablet versus ferrous sulfate, which is like 67 milligrams versus a ferrous fumarate, which is 100 milligrams. How do we know which one to go with and how many? Um, and to simplify things, the amount of iron per tablet 
Um, if we have somebody who needs to start low and go slow because they have a history of sensitivity, maybe a ferrous gluconate would be better because it's only 36 milligrams per tablet. Whereas if we want to hit somebody with a higher dose because we really want to quickly raise their ferritin levels, maybe we'll go with a ferrous fumarate, which is 100 milligrams per tablet. Or, you know, with Ferripro, we solved the problem because now we have an actual Ferris Fumarate product, which is 150 milligrams comparatively to the Fairmax 150. It's a therapeutic dose in one single unit. Um, so the, the dosing between those three conventional iron salts isn't as complicated as it feels like it is. It's simply low dose, middle dose, high dose. The, the side effect profile and the absorption is going to be pretty much the same. The only difference is the percentage of elemental iron. Okay. So what the iron's attached to doesn't make a big difference in terms of between the tolerability? The, yeah, between those three conventional mm -hmm. iron salts, we don't really see a difference in side effect profile. So if they're seen clinically, it's more likely to be excipients and colors and other stuff like that from your, from your perspective, you think? It's possible. And... I also want to sort of highlight that most people are going to have side effects if they are mm -hmm. iron supplement naive. Mm -hmm. um, most people are going to have upset stomach and constipation. And what I tell my patients is that your body grows out of it. You know, um, over time, as the body's kind of getting used to seeing an iron supplement, we have our own mechanisms for um, getting tolerant to those side effects. And so people who have nausea at the beginning will over time and not have nausea anymore. And another thing that I tell my patients is take it last thing before bed. We know that iron absorbs better on empty stomach. So last thing before bed, maybe three hours after your last meal. And then if you have nausea, you're sleeping through it. You know, um, that seems to work with a lot of people. Um, but it's interesting that that, sorry, I just, I just want yeah. to say it's interesting that that seems to I don't know, maybe it's just in my circles, but I, my patients always said, well, my doctor said to take it with food because it's going to cause nausea. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have seen more people informed that, that perhaps that empty stomach dosing is going to improve absorption. Yeah, absolutely. We know that definitely iron absorbs better on an empty stomach. Um, and I think there's a, the reason why they get recommended to take it with food is, is because the side effects can be a barrier to therapy. So it's better to have some of it than none sure. of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do recommend my patients, you know, if you ha are having a really hard time, you can take it with a small meal, but over time, taper that off. You know, eventually as your body's getting used to it, you can tolerate an empty stomach and then we're going to have more efficacious therapy. Is there any, um, I, I know there's maybe a little bit of evidence of every other day dosing. Um, do you want to talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting science coming out of this. Um, I think the trials have been relatively small and mostly on women, um, but I've seen it actually be quite effective even in practice. So the idea is that like going back to the notion that the body really strictly gatekeeps iron absorption because that's the only way that we can control iron levels. Um, the body's quite smart. If it sees iron at high doses multiple times a day um, or even in the same 24-hour cycle, it will release something called hepcidin, which is going to negatively feed back and block further iron absorption. This is our body's defense mechanism against 
getting toxic on iron levels because remember we have no way of actively excreting excess iron. So we're finding that definitely multiple times a day dosing, which was the wisdom back in the day, is actually counterproductive to iron absorption. So when we used to say, oh, if it upsets your stomach, split the dose into twice a day or three times a day, we're now noticing that your body's not even going to bother trying to absorb the second or third dose that it's seeing. And uh, hence, the unabsorbed iron is going to further cause side effects. So very counterintuitive. Um, but taking this idea even further, we're finding that if we do every other day or every third day dosing, we are limiting the response from hepcidin to block absorption. And we're finding in patients that the amount of total iron they're absorbing goes up, meaning their ferritin is corrected faster sure. than if they were doing once a day. Um, and so I have actually started applying this to my practice. If I'm having patients who are taking a really high quality iron supplement, tolerating it okay, but still their ferritin is creeping up very slowly or not at all, recommending that they go every other day or every third day, same dose, you know, where we don't necessarily have to double or up the dose, um, that their iron levels start to go up more efficiently. So it is really interesting, and I, I'm looking forward to how that's playing out um, as more studies come out. For the gut-focused people, can you uh, let us know where iron is absorbed and, and what, it, um, you know, what that implies, like knowing where it's absorbed? Yeah, typically higher up in the uh, small intestine. Um, makes sense because we do require stomach acid for making sure that it's in its ferrous form. And so the further along we get in the intestine, the, the less acidic it becomes. So most of our receptors are higher up. And that's another interesting thought as to the difference between ferrous iron salts and polysaccharide iron complexes is the polysaccharide iron complexes don't really break down until further in the gut when we have fewer and fewer mm -hmm. of those receptors. And so... And more and more bacteria, yeah. which use iron as a catalyst. Yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of, and this is just theoretical, I don't have any evidence um, for it, but in theory, it makes sense to me that that could be a contributing factor to why we're seeing um, less efficacy with the polysaccharide iron complexes compared to just conventional iron salts. Mm -hmm. Are there other things that are going to help? I mean, you've mentioned a few already, like vitamin C and acid. Is there anything else in the environment of the gut or that we're taking alongside iron that is going to improve that um, absorption? Yeah, vitamin C is the number one. So uh, we know that the enzyme that converts ferric to ferrous iron requires the ascorbic acid as a cofactor. Um, so studies have shown with the, uh, the adequate amount of ascorbic acid um, co-administered with the iron supplement that you can get up to 10 times higher wow. bioavailability. It's really significant. Um, so vitamin C is probably my number one. If it's not already formulated into your iron supplement, take your vitamin C alongside the iron supplement. Um, like Ferropro, it's formulated right within the same capsule. So, you know, peace of mind there. Um Aside from that, absorption, not so much. Making Just trying your best to ensure that you're not acid suppressed is one thing. Um, but, you know, 
not all of us can get off of those medications. Um, tolerability wise, we talked about chelating with something like glycine to make ferrous bisglycinate. Um, but because once the iron is dissolved in the stomach, it's, it's an equilibrium. And so if we give a ferrous fumarate with a glycine, not together in the capsule, but once it gets dissolved in the gut, it's, it's an equilibrium amongst all of those things. And so some of that iron gets chelated to the glycine that was, that just so happened to also be in that capsule. And that can help with tolerability. So that's another reason why glycine is in the Ferropro formulation. And we're seeing also in other formulations, ferrous glycinate, um, because that can help enhance tolerability and maybe not directly uh, enhance absorption, but because it's more tolerable for the patient, they're more likely to stay on the therapy. Is this because iron's a pro-oxidant and so it's highly reactive and then it has a, something else to sort of jump onto? Is, is that? Yeah, yeah. So once something's in, in solution, um, it's kind of ready to bind to other things, come off of the other thing, bind to another thing. And with the chelate, the, the binding is um, a little bit stronger. And so, you know, it's always going back and forth. And when it's in the split second where it's in, you know, the, the ferrous form ion, then it can actually get absorbed. So it's all kind of this like soup <laughs> in the stomach. And we try to formulate something that makes the soup um, optimized in terms of both so, uh, um, absorption and tolerability. Yeah, which if, if it hasn't been sort of conveyed, I think we probably should say is that iron, it's like a lot of things. You need, a, you need to have the right amount. Um, and too little is obviously what we focus on, but... Too much is is it makes you sort of rust from the inside. It make you know it's a pro-oxidant. So um, I think that's worth saying. Yeah, it is absolutely possible um, to go overboard with iron therapy. That's why iron is kept behind the counter when it's in high doses mm -hmm. because you can have acute toxicity, which in children can even be fatal. You know, those green and red tablets that we talked about look an awful lot like candy yeah. to yeah. kids, right? Yeah. Um, but even chronic toxicity, this is why we always screen patients to make sure they're getting their iron levels checked when they are when they are taking therapeutic doses. Because once we get into a healthy range of ferritin or we've removed the underlying cause of the deficiency, if we keep supplementing high doses, and their body has no way of actively excreting that extra iron, it's mm -hmm. going to go places that it shouldn't. It's mm -hmm. going to start depositing in arteries and joints and tissues and, and definitely cause, you know, the stress, the oxidative stress that you're talking about. Yeah. I think uh, maybe just to, to kind of round out this conversation, something you just uh, brought up there. Um, what, what sort of timeline should, um, you know, our listeners be expecting? So, you know, from that moment of, oh, yes, you're iron deficient. I am suggesting an iron supplement. Um, what's kind of the timeline of supplementing, retesting levels, and like how long does it take, um, you know, to climb out of that iron deficiency? Yeah, longer than you think. Mm -hmm. So just to get out of the status of being iron deficient, at least two to four months, um, when we're starting to see the symptoms resolve, if their iron deficiency was bad enough to affect the red blood cell count and the hemoglobin count, it takes that long to really get out of that. 
And then after that, we want to normalize the ferritin levels. So maybe even another four months after that and then retest. So easily a eight month journey for patients. Mm -hmm. And then if we can't remove the underlying cause of chronic deficiency, for example, if it's their diet, if it's um, menses, um, or if it is medication caused, we might have to do a maintenance dose of iron indefinitely and just keep monitoring. So it's very individualized, but at the very least, a two to four months to get out of the deficient state. What would you say in broad terms is a ferritin you're aiming for, for like adequate iron stores? Yeah, ideally about a hundred or mm-hmm. higher. Yeah. Which shocks so many people. It does. So right. many patients are like, I can't imagine a hundred iron <laughs> hanging out at 10 or 15 um, for years. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. All right. Dr. Dave, do you think, can you think of any other, uh, any other omissions while we have Ying here? It's just so great to have this perspective. Yeah, um, it's, it's, yeah. it's adding depth to our, uh, to our <clears throat> knowledge of, of iron uh, and iron deficiency. Um, we, I think we could, we could go on like about some specific examples, like Ying, you brought up the anemia of uh, chronic disease. And I've been looking into the anemia of, of inflammation. Like there's so much more we could go into, but I think this has been, um, a good great sort of, primer. Yeah, a great primer on iron um, for, for people and, and clinicians alike. So um, yeah, I'm, ha- I'm happy with that for now. I, Yang, is there anything that, you know, you, we've done this talk, we've, we've gone, you know, as deep as we can in about 40 minutes or so. Is there anything that you really, really, really want to get across to people about iron deficiency or, uh, you know, specific attributes of certain iron formulas that, that is really, really important? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm seeing this improvement, but a lot of patients have perhaps low iron, but they talk to their doctor and because it's in that, you know, low but normal range for ferritin, even though they're symptomatic, they're just told, no, it's fine. You're in the normal range. And I think it's important for patients to know that you can be symptomatic. It can affect your quality of life even when your ferritin is, you know, 30. Mm-hmm. So it is reasonable to supplement if you are symptomatic at those levels as well. And I am seeing a lot of improvement from clinicians. And of course, in for naturopathy, we're definitely on the same page when it comes to supplementing when necessary. Um, being patient with the supplementation, it's very, very common, even with the best formulation to have some side effects and just knowing that that does get better with time and persistence Um, and getting a well-rounded supplement that is going to not only be tolerable so you can keep going with it, but also be shown and have a track record based on evidence that it's going to work. Well, thank you for raising the bar, the iron bar, (laughs) because I think for too long, we've really... Uh, tolerated a low bar. And I love that you're using evidence and a whole bunch of kind of geeky smarts to, (laughs) uh, to help us understand the importance and and really how to do this properly. So it was really great to speak to you today. And honestly, for naturopaths listening, like, 
honestly, a compounding pharmacist and a naturopath in a room is magic. Like Mm -hmm. I really think that we complement each other so well. Uh, So having a good compounding pharmacist and a naturopath that work together, like we can do awesome things. (laughs) And I hope this conversation really highlights that too. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Thank you so much, Ying. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right.